0: To the Center for Strategic and International Studies, my name is Errol Yabake. I am a Senior Fellow here at CSIS and also the Deputy Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development. We really appreciate everyone coming out on a Thursday afternoon that's gorgeous before Labor Day. Um, I think this is a really important topic and, and a really important report that we're putting out. Right now, so appreciate all of you taking uh, the time out to do this. Before I give a brief summary of of the report, which I hope all or most of you were, were able to get, it will be posted online, by the way, right after this event. Uh, I wanted to say a, a couple of um, a couple of thank yous. First is to the Ford Foundation uh, that has uh, we are just completing our second year of funding with the Ford Foundation, and they've been a really great partner with us. So thanks to the Ford Foundation for believing uh, in us, uh, a slightly non-traditional partner for them on this. Uh, I want to thank my co-author, Carmen Garcia-Gallego, who is currently in Laos working for UNICEF. Um, If she's watching online, hello, Carmen. Uh, And then I want to thank our our panelists, uh, who I will introduce uh, in a minute. So this is an issue that has come onto mine and, and our team at CSIS's radar more and more over the last couple of years that we've been looking at this. And and it's really an issue, this issue of irregular migration that's frustrating in a lot of ways. Because when you talk when you talk about people who are moving without some sort of regular status, so often you're talking, at least in the United States, about illegal immigrants. In the report, you know, we shouldn't say that illegal immigrants don't exist, they do, but they're a small subset of the overall stock of, of migrants globally that doesn't have status uh, and, and, and isn't able to move through regular orderly and safe means. And I think there's a really important conversation to be had around what to do for those people, what to do with those people. Um, I see this report as the beginning of a conversation we need to be having more conversations like this in policy circles Um, we need to be having more panels like this and more discussions and more roundtables that are talking about this real phenomenon of people on the move and desperate people moving out of desperate circumstances uh, most of the time and because irregular migrants not only live in and travel through the shadows, but the idea of irregular migration has been one that has been caught in the shadows of broader forced migration, uh, forced displacement, and, and migration conversations globally. You know, those conversations typically revolve around people with internationally recognized status. These are legal immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers. And I think those are really important uh, architectures that we have for those people and we need to maintain those and we need to strengthen those. Um, But irregular migration is a critical global and underappreciated phenomenon, hence the existence of this report. And hence why you're here today. We estimate that there are over hundred million irregular migrants, slightly more than our friends at IOM. Uh, We have taken uh, our own uh, slightly broader definition of irregular migration. Uh, The reality is we don't know. That could be an overblown estimate. That could be a conservative estimate. A lot more work needs to be done on this and, and we hope that we can do it. Here's where I say something controversial. People in DC don't really, in and, and the United States and Europe and elsewhere, don't really like to talk about migration right now. CSIS is a bipartisan institution. We are not in the gotcha game. We want to present good, credible, bipartisan solutions to the challenging global issues of our time. Um, I think the US needs to take a leadership role. That's my controversial opinion. Um, I think that even in today's political environment, ignoring the root causes of, of why people are moving irregularly and only focusing on people that are arriving at the border and, and the size of the wall and, and other things is, is a mistake. And I think that mistake has long-term ramifications. Um, we Carmen and I and, and our program here argues that U.S. leaders That was, all, that was for all you folks on C-SPAN too that broke from the Pete Buttigieg uh, rally to, to join us here um, at CSIS. So uh, I think that um, U.S. leadership is both critical and feasible. Uh, realistically, not on everything, right? This is where my controversial opinion maybe gets tempered with a little bit of reality. Um, but I actually think that ignoring this issue is not an option. And so thank you again um, to all of you for being here, and I'd like to invite uh, Brian, Cindy, and, and Key to the stage for what I know will be a very interesting uh, conversation. Are we good on these mics, guys? We get on the mics, everybody can hear us. Great. We have foiled their plans. Um, you probably came in, in small part to get a free copy of of a report and you know thanks for for doing that and, and hopefully you got one. But I hope you also came to hear from uh, three people who I think are are really important in this space uh, they are addressing th- this and other issues from a, a whole host of different perspectives, um, and so I, I think that it's it's not just about the report, and it's not just about listening to people like me here at CSIS. Uh, you know, one of the benefits and the privileges of working at CSIS is I get to email people like Brian and Cindy and Key and say, "We're doing this thing. Would you would you be a part of it?" and thankfully, uh, they say yes. So Brian, I'm going to start with you. Um, you are the, the head of the Community Stabilization Unit at the UN Migration Agency, also known as IOM. Um, you've been with IOM since the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have worked in the Balkans, Afghanistan, Indonesia, Nepal, Iraq, Pakistan, and countless other places. Um, you have your your a published author yourself on climate change and displacement uh you've written a handbook on on communicating with disaster affected communities and uh relevant for a later part of this conversation i think uh you've also written about uh libya and and labor migrants um suffering in libya from from the cr- uh, caught in the crisis so Brian, if you could, um, if I could just ask you a, a broad question first about, you know, we talk about shadows in this report um, where irregular migra- migrants find themselves. You work with stabilization and in some of these places where where these shadows exist. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you think about these issues?
1: Sure, but I must I, I must begin by just Thanking you for the the opportunity to be with such an esteemed panel. It's uh it, it's great, and the report's very helpful, and, and the commitment that CSIS has had for a few years now looking at this issue is is really important. So uh, so thank you. Um. You know, I I, I look at the issue uh, probably mostly through the eyes of the people that that I've met, the faces of the people, and. The, the conversations that 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 I've been fortunate enough to have over time, uh, you know, a couple a couple anecdotes. It's uh, I remember being in in eastern Niger, uh, in in Agadez, which is a historical transit point uh, for migration corridors heading heading north, and I had met this this I think it was 17 year old. Uh, Guy from Burkina Faso, uh, and he had just come back to Agadez after a failed trip to to Europe, and he told me about the consistent horrific events that had occurred until then. He was imprisoned in in Libya, and, and he told me with a with a with a smile on his face and, and his, his 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 innocent eyes about, it, actually it brought me back to like a philosophy class on Kierkegaard uh, <laughs> where, where he talked about the best day of his imprisonment in Libya is when he was sold mm. from a North African prison owner to a sub-Saharan African prison owner uh, because he thought that then he'd be deemed value, uh, uh, valuable enough to live. The, just last week there was an article in Reuters about... Uh, 15 migrants that were, that were trying to, to cross the Med. 14 of the 15 died. The, the one gentleman from Ethiopia who survived was talking about the boats and the ships that were passing him, that he saw their faces, and they moved on. It, it's, it's horrible. So what does, it, what does it mean to me? I mean, when you get too attached to, to, to the horrific stories that we, that we face, it actually can affect you personally. Um, and so we have to take a step back a little bit and take a look at some statistics and numbers in there, because yeah. you gotta got 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 wrap yourself in, in that. For the Missing Migrants Project, it's 1,750 that have died so far this year. That's down from three years ago, where it was, where it was over 5,000. Uh, and at least now there's a little bit more of an understanding of of data. If you go back to Libya, uh, I remember when, when Gaddafi was killed and IOM, my, my organization, was being asked a very reasonable question. How many migrants are in Libya? Mm. Check out the press releases. You can actually go back and, and look at it. Uh, 75,000, 150, <laughs> 254 didn't know. Yeah. Just, just didn't know what the answer. Now, yeah. approximately 670,000, uh, 80% male. Uh, about 10% are, are minors, and. It also made me rethink, uh, vulnerability, and when when you apply that to to migrants, because when you think traditional, I've done a lot of humanitarian response. You think traditionally, with with, with vulnerability, an unaccompanied female. It's fairly high up on the list in the midst of a crisis. But it was actually the 20-something groups of guys wow. who were migrants who were the most vulnerable in Libya hmm. because they were perceived to be party to the conflict. They possibly could have been recruited because with, 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 with Gaddafi's greater Pan-Africa plan, there was a lot of migration from sub-Saharan Africa. So these sub-Saharan African men in their 20s, they were all being targeted. Uh, whereas the the, the un, unaccompanied females who primarily were were working at, at residences were fairly safe. Well, what does that mean in real terms? It means what kind of commodities we needed to have on the other side of the border when people were coming across. We were anticipating a lot of a lot of women that were coming across, and they didn't come. We we're like, hey, but we thought this was happening. And these these real-life implications, and that was. That was 2011. It just uh, 2011 was kind of a, a, a fairly big year when when you look at when you look at dealing with with migrants and the, the in the issues that they were facing. Because you also had, if you remember, in uh, in Thailand there were the big floods that came into Bangkok and and further up in the north, and there were all these uh, Myanmar nationals that that were there in irregular status. I think there's approximately about about a million. And all of them didn't speak the language. They didn't have access to services. They were isolated, and they had to get assistance. And I, I remember I was there at the time and, and talking with the, with the head of the Thai Red Cross, who was in a really difficult political spot. And I, and I really appreciated his commitment to helping migrants. But if you've only got so many resources, you're also not helping someone else. And you're not helping these Thai nationals who've also participated, yeah. maybe donated to the Thai Red Cross. And so, so it really tested uh, uh, the concept of impartiality and needs-based yeah. assistance. And luckily, just trying to put a little bit of a positive spin on that, you, you move forward. And then 2014 came the migrants in countries in crisis, which did less developed countries and more developed uh, in then you also had 2015, the, the Federation of the Red Cross came forward with a uh, campaign on migrants' rights. And collectively, and I, I think we're, it's kind of the space we're heading now,
0: we're, we're starting to
1: institutionalize uh, some of the, the,
0: the needs of migrants and, and how, to, how to best address them. I hope so. And, and one of the things that uh, I think we should talk about here is uh, the global compacts and, and how that's moving forward. Um, Brian, if, if you'll allow me, um, we'll go to the other panelists, but I, I would love to touch on um, the compacts and, and what you're seeing coming forward and how that's gonna be operationalized. But before we do that, um, Cindy, thanks for being here. Um, I, I was looking back on your bio and reminded that you are actually Dr. Cindy Huang. Um, so Dr. Huang, thank you for being here. Uh, You are, uh, for the time being, a Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development, but the incoming Vice President of Strategic Outreach at Refugees International. Um, And I really can't wait to hear you talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing at Refugees International, because I think it's very interesting and relevant. you were uh, Director of Policy at the State Department's uh, CSO, uh, Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. You were a Senior Advisor to the Counselor and Chief of Staff at the State Department, and you've done some other really incredible things throughout your career. Um, so thank you again for being here. Um, you know, you've, you've tackled these issues both in the migration, forced displacement, uh, even, even some of this irregular migration stuff from, from research and policy angles, both uh, from within and, and outside of government. So can you just talk a little bit about your reactions to maybe what Brian said or just this this issue set in general?
2: Great, well thank you. It's a real honor to be here and it's been really fun um, to have this collaboration between CGB and CSIS. Different think tanks can play nicely together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it's been really great because as you said, there, there's the, the need for more attention and I agree with your controversial statement of, a, a need for US leadership on these topics. So I'm actually you've caught me in a little bit of a philosophical mood, not as philosophical as Kierkegaard, (laughs) um, which I did not study. We
3: can go there though, (laughs) you know.
2: But I was, and I read your report, and congratulations on it. But it did make me think about some of the questions and ideas that you pose there around, you know, kind of what is the state of this the post World War II order the 1951 Convention on Refugees, the 1967 Protocol, and I should, the caveat here is that most of my research and work has been focused on refugees, so I kind of come at it through that angle, but I completely agree that it's time to take a step back and that we shouldn't be Yes, there are real refugee protection concerns in the world and that's why I'm so proud to to have joined Refugees International because I think we need those independent voices out there but we also have to grapple with the fact that the world order is changing and we can either approach it from a position of fear and say no we got to clamp down and just protect what's there protect the institutions like UNHCR which is providing invaluable services for some of the most vulnerable people in the world so we can either kind of clamp down or we could you know take a fresh look and say this is going to be a really challenging time but a lot of the phenomenon I'll say a little bit more about the research that CGD has done in this area really challenges us to take an approach that we know will be longer term to rebuild a system and I'm very interested in your thoughts on the GCM and GCR because I think these are they're not perfect they won't be perfectly implemented but they are the next step I think in trying to uh, outline the future of the architecture that we need and I was really moved by um, what you said about the experience in in Libya around you know who are the most vulnerable you know when the the, when UNHCR was set up, and of course it's evolved, you know, it was really around kind of who were the masses of people who were most vulnerable at the time. Mm-hmm. But it, we, gotta, we have to question that. Um, and so just at, from, from the research that I've been doing, just a, a few, um, so not just myself, sorry, but also CGD and my colleague, Michael Clemens, who, and this is mentioned in your report, Errol, around you know thinking about the Central Americans who are fleeing and that is at the top of the political discourse, but you know in some of the, the rigorous empirical work that CGD has done finding that you know there is no um, way to disentangle people who are fleeing violence from people who are also looking for economic opportunity. It's a mix, and using statistical methods, you can say there is this relationship between people, increases in homicide, in particular municipalities, and the presence of long-term unemployment and underemployment, you know? And so it really challenges us challenges us to think about you know how we can't separate if someone answers on a survey you know I came for economic opportunities well it could be that and you know the school that they had sent their child to is closed because of gang violence and their neighbor has been targeted and maybe that doesn't uh, respond to a definition of refugee status that exists, but they're really fleeing difficult circumstances. And so I think there's a really also an opportunity to bring together different methods to, to, to create a, a better understanding of vulnerability um, and, and displacement today. So one other thing I really appreciated about your report is that you know it does talk about a spectrum, you know, as I've discussed, and I, it really has challenged me to think about you know looking at refugees where um, some governments, like um, Turkey, have provided you know kind of permission Kim for people to be in Turkey, but only in specific places. And so there's there was in the news recently the fact that there was the, you know, reports of the deportation of Syrians who were not in the government that they were registered in. So again, how do you, you know, how yeah. there, there's a whole spectrum of situations. And so even for refugees and those who have um, refugee or in refugee refugee status or in refugee-like situations, you know, even their status is, can be irregular in some way. So that was just yeah. another example that was in the news recently, that came to mind. Um, and so, just to give a teaser on the work that I'll be doing at Refugees International, it's really around how to better take a take that fresh look and better understand also about how the public, now that's too general of a term, but how does the public think about migration, and my focus will be forced displacement and refugees in particular, but in that example of um, you know, someone whose neighbor has been killed, mother has been threatened, you know, I, I do believe, and some polls show this, that the quote-unquote average person or many people we can say, look at that and say, you know, that person deserves protection um, yeah, you know we and what that, that person. we should we need to help that person and so yeah. what that looks like in and we have to do a lot of work to build consensus around these under uh, kind of the reality of vulnerability we haven't even yet touched on climate vulnerability which is yeah. mentioned in your report but so we have to build a consensus and it um around some some of these understand- we do- Support. And you know, to me, U.S. leadership means leadership at the highest levels, but also engaging in a public dialogue and public education about vulnerability and protection and what. That means from a very basic human level, um, and also what that means at the level of systems and institutions. And I will, I o- almost always say this in panels, even though there have been very challenging times on refugee and asylum issues recently, I am by disposition an optimist. And I, I do have to believe that this set of challenges, will, which will affect not only the United States, but uh, is already affecting so many countries. That, that there is a way for it. So I'll just end with one last um, country that I've been looking at that is, I think, providing a lot of leadership, which is Colombia, you know, wow. hosting so many Venezuelans and just taking a very positive approach. And some of the research I've done talks about that, you know, given the right to work, so not only you know, permission around residency or refugee status, um, that, that refugees are actually given the right to work and allowed to contribute, and I think there are governments that are, um, you know, keeping the doors relatively open and seeing that optimism and that potential opportunity in hosting um, refugees or even those without status as well, so,
0: I, yeah. I mean, you brought up about a zillion really important points there. Um, just two I wanted to highlight. Yeah. I, I had the opportunity last week to, to help lead a course here at CSIS for a bunch of journalism students. Mm. And they chose um, Venezuela and, and sort of displaced Venezuelans and their status issue as their topic. Mm. Um, and so together with my colleague Moises Rendon, uh, we were sort of the topical experts on this. And I learned a lot about why we do this verbal dance every time we talk about Venezuelans. We talk about Venezuelan migrants and refugees. We talk yeah. about Venezuelan people living in refugee-like situations. You know, there's this, uh, there's this dance that happens. And there was a really important point that we figured out through the course of that week, which was um, part of the reason is because countries like Colombia are affording temp- a version of temporary protection right. and status, And so if we go full on into the refugee asylum uh, push, that may actually have overall negative consequences in the grand scheme of things. And so it was sort of the unintended potential consequences of good intentions all of that to say, these are really complicated issues, and there's no easy answer to this.
2: Yeah, and if I could just follow up with one point on that, which is, I do think in this time when norms are shifting relatively quickly, the kind of the de facto what is on the ground and what's the political narrative and approach is potentially even more important. So that mm. as we think about these examples, where it's not, um, you know, there could be unintended consequences to, you know, both. Uh, practically and politically speaking, of invoking uh, status that, you know, that looking what's on the ground and seeing are there seeds where this could grow, where Colombia could play a role, be a role model for other countries in the region and kind of start to also think about how we build the system from the bottom up is, I think, also a really important line of inquiry, which it Uh sounds like you had with the students last week.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and they were really phenomenal uh, undergrads that were not topical experts on this, but really were asking all the right questions and are make me hopeful about the future of journalism. Um, The other point I wanted to make uh, was this point about the Central Americans. So we have a case study in this report on Mexico. And the idea is not to talk about Mexicans coming to the United States because as we point out in this case study, 1995 called and they want their problem back. That's not what's going on right now. There are some Mexicans that are coming north but more Mexico, even though its policies and its psyche and and our psyche towards Mexico and our policies towards Mexico is focused on Mexicans coming north, the reality is that Mexico is a net receiver of people right now. And they're having to deal with the influx of the Central Americans and the Haitians and even the Venezuelans and beyond, and oh, by the way, Mexicans that are leaving the US and going back to Mexico. Uh, and their their systems aren't really set up for that and so we were we were talking about this and as part of this research we went down to the Guatemalan border and so the cover of this is actually from a migrant shelter um, in southern Mexico and when we were talking to people down there this idea of what you and Michael have done really excellent research on about how if you ask someone they'll say yeah I came for a better life but if you peel back that onion just one layer it's because of the reasons that you said. It's because if I'm a woman walking at, at night, and there's, I live in a poor neighborhood, and there's not a, a light in my neighborhood, I'm at risk of sexual violence, or, or maybe I don't have uh, you know, enough money to have a lock on my door, and so that we're at risk of just vandalism and robbery at, at every moment. Maybe that's not top of mind for that person when they're answering that question on that survey, but like I said, if you peel back that onion a little bit, I, I'm willing to bet that most of those people are. So I'm glad that there are more credible researchers than I that are backing up that theory that I had based on talking to people, but um, thanks for that. Key, uh, you're the chief operating officer at the International Medical Corps. You maintain uh, an affiliation with George Washington University. You were at Tulane before. Um, you are a man of many hats uh... and and we're very happy to to have you here you were relevant for this conversation you were also the head of the office of foreign disaster assistance in the bush administration uh... at usaid so you've come at these issues from a from a whole host of different perspectives uh... academic practitioner government official So same question to you how do you think about uh... these
4: issues Well, first i, I we'll congratulate you and CSAS on on the report and really to keep the migration issue regular or irregular at the forefront. I mean, I think this through in the sense that uh, the urgency with which we have to come up with a better way to deal with migration flows, right? Where I think your report noted that perhaps uh, with rising sea levels in Bangladesh, we may be dealing in 40, 50 years with an entire country that might be underwater. What do we do with that entire population, right? Um, in New Orleans, where I live, in Louisiana, as you know, right, we are losing land uh, by the day, where if you're outside the levee system, already uh, there are towns uh, that are underwater. Um, what do we do with this population? So it's relevant. It's overseas. It's relevant here. I think what how we approach it and how I approach it is that we need to have more of an evidence base Mm-hmm. approach to dealing with the migration issue and a project that uh, while at Tulane and George Washington that we worked on um, was we developed and stood up what we call the Resilient African Network which is a collaboration of 18 universities in Sub-Saharan Africa that also included at that time Stanford Tulane and now George Washington and the, the network looked at how do we measure resilience resilience to conflict, resilience to food insecurity, resilience to gender-based violence, and how do we measure that and use that knowledge and evidence to actually inform innovation solutions to address resilience? And in Somalia, uh, an interesting study we partnered with Benadir University, which was to look at how do populations become more resilient to conflict and chronic displacement? Mm. And developing, using a mixed method study, right, um, in six communities uh, in Somalia, we had identified uh, dimensions of resilience that we found to be um, protective factors, right? They had a high predictive value in terms of mitigating the impact of of, uh, chronic displacement. Those three are very similar to what's been identified in your report, um, governance, wealth, and access to basic services. So in host communities that had policies that promoted uh, protection, afforded basic human rights, um, that afforded the, the displaced population opportunities for livelihood, that had uh, afforded them access to basic services, we found higher scores of uh, resilience. And I will take that further in terms of applying it in my current role with the International Medical Corps. Um, and if you can put on a, uh, that, picture in the slide here, which is that um, in June, I had the opportunity to travel out to uh, Libya and to Tripoli to look at our programs firsthand. And um, um, irregular migration, right? Uh, Libya comes to mind um, where you've seen the pictures, you've seen the stories. Uh, Libya now is a country of transit, right? There are also these pictures here in terms of the sea rescues that take place International Medical Corps is operating in nine detention centers uh, providing health care we're also uh, providing sea rescues and this is what irregular migrants or migrants are faced with so this is a detention center that's along the airport road and you'll see in the middle picture uh, the size of that room is probably I would say the size of this room and At that time, during my visit, there were over a thousand young men that were housed in this facility. Uh, This facility in this picture uh, to the right, okay, had one bathroom. Uh, As we spoke to the young men within this detention center, their daily ritual is uh, to be able to wait in line to use the facilities. That is their reality day in and day out. Um, They're sleeping next to each other and they're waiting for something to happen. And these are individuals who had paid smugglers to be able to bring them into Libya, hoping to be able to transit out. When they arrive at the border, um, they're picked up by local militias who then put them into uh, a detention center uh, where they'll go back to the families and try to uh, exploit and try to get additional monies. Um, And they're detained here for upwards of six to nine months. In this population, there are irregular migrants, but they're also what we would consider to be refugees, right, who are waiting for um, uh, interviews with UNHCR. They're looking to be able to be resettled, perhaps, or find a solution. We also see uh, groups of young children, youth, that are housed in these detention facilities among the men. and As you can think through here in terms of the protection-related issues, um, this is the reality here. Again, I just wanted to put the picture out there, but bring it back in terms of what is it that we can do, perhaps, to mitigate the, the negative impact uh, of, of uh, when things happen, where these protection issues come up. And going back to governance, wealth, um, and access to basic services, because Libya was not always a transit country; it was a point of destination. So, in the 50s yeah. and 60s, with the uh, uh, oil, oil and the economic boom, boom there, um, this was a large pull factor uh, for many uh, within Sub-Saharan Africa. And at the height uh, of kind of the, the the pro-immigration policy, open borders, where um, you know uh, Sub-Saharan Africans did not need a visa in order to come to uh, Libya. Um, I believe there was something like two and a half million migrants in Libya compared to a total population of six million. Um, So migrants played a huge role with regard to the economic backbone and society within uh, Libya. So when you see a breakdown in terms of the governance structure, when it's not affording basic human rights, when you're not allowed access to basic services, Um, and you don't have a means in terms of of generating livelihoods, you move quickly from being able to have positive pull factors uh, that actually benefit both the host community and countries and the migrants themselves, uh, to a situation where we see today uh, in Libya um, that for many of these individuals, uh, there's not a lot of hope.
0: Yeah. It strikes me that as you were talking, I was thinking, if we had just replaced the word Libya with Venezuela in what you were talking about. I mean, Venezuela used to be a destination for workers, again, because of an oil boom, and, and you know they were very welcoming to Colombians who were escaping um, the narco wars in the 90s, and, and now, now look where they are. And, and uh, I'm glad you brought up governance in that same conversation. I'm, I'm rereading Why Nations Fail right now, and so I'm, I'm really, hot on institutions and, uh, and governance. So um, thanks for that. You also mentioned Bangladesh, and, and Cindy, I know that you've been in Bangladesh recently thinking about um, uh, sort of a, a compacts in a slightly different way. So I, I do want to come back to you on the Bangladesh compacts point, but maybe before we do that, Brian, tell us a little bit about where we are with the global compact on migration, um, I'm mainly gonna ask you about the GCM, the degree to which you'd like to comment on the GCR, that's fine, but really where are we, where are we going, and, and does it matter?
1: Uh, I think it does. I totally agree with you, but
0: I <laughs> um, thought I'd love a
1: softball at you. But there's a, yeah, there's, there's nothing quite like a multilateral non-binding consultative <laughs> process to really excite the crowd. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. Errol, it'll be uh, so. This this December, uh, the the GCM will have its its uh, first birthday, Mm -hmm. and one thing that came out of of the GCM, which was not born in a vacuum, uh, but it was born out of a regional processes that that had occurred in some earlier affirmations, is that a network and a migration network was was created. and whenever you have a network, of course you have an executive committee, yeah. And and then you have a, uh, a secretariat. And that's that, that's a role that, that IOM has. And there's secondments from UNHCR and UN Women. Uh, I think UNICEF is bringing, bringing someone on to help with with the uh, with the secretariat. But the just so you know, the executive committee and the membership of the network, it's all it's all available on uh, online for those. For those who are for those who are interested, and uh, very recently the the network just came out with a uh, with a work plan, and the work plan looking at some of its uh, some of its core activities, there's there's a startup fund for safe, orderly, and regular migration. Hmm. Uh, there's a goal to capitalize that up to 25 million. I think 1 million. Is, uh, is, in, is in white right now. It's, uh, on that, and of course, with any fun, then there's the steering committee and the, the, the exciting world of uh, multilateral UN affairs. This um, is why people hate multilateral. <laughs> <laughs> and and ILOs, multi-lateral. ILO is in, in engaged in that. Again, I think, I think UN women, uh, and, and if I'm, if I'm skipping a, a, a UN brother or sister organization. You'll I, get an angry email. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will, and it's uh, <laughs> it also has uh, uh, donor countries. And Germany is is participating in, in in that, and then also countries representing sending, receiving, uh, and transit countries. Although now so to be honest, so many countries are all three. Yeah. Uh, so so how that's going to be sorted out? They're going to have to they're going to have to uh, work work through that. Just got constituted in in May. This is the fund. The fund yeah. got constituted in may and and then they're pulling everyone together uh in in october okay. to to figure out exactly what the what the modalities will be so there's 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 one more pretty important structure uh and then i'll just give some some key dates but the the international migration review forum uh, the, the Global Compact said that this, this forum will be created. The Global Compact was state-led, and this, this forum is at a, at a head-of-state level. Uh, they'd be meeting every four years. The first time is going to be 2022. Hmm. Uh, and Bangladesh and Spain are leading that, that process. So for some key dates, uh, this December 11th, the, the one year anniversary you'll have the the, the annual meeting of the network. Uh, as per the GCM, there's there's an obligation to provide an evaluation of how how it's performing. And so mm-hmm. one year that's that's done by the Secretariat, by by us and, and and partners. And then the then the subsequent year it's done by the Secretary General. Okay. Um, so we 're really pleased that it has that level of of visibility the u n secretary general the
0: u n secretary general <coughs> uh, and that's that that 's baked into i think that 's significant mm-hmm. that that he is himself playing a role in the operationalization of the the gCM
1: yeah and so we 'll be looking at that uh, they'll be he 'll be engaged uh, every other year in in the review and and there is there is an annual review process which is uh which is already which is already baked into that, and then really the goal is how do you how do you operationalize it and make it make it relevant on the on the country and regional level? Uh, one way you do that is with a fund, <laughs> and and so as of today, there's approximately fifty UN country teams that have been looking at the GCM and figuring out what of the the various 23 parts of the, the, yeah. the, the GCM would be relevant for their country team and, and trying to align themselves with it. I don't know what
0: percentage of the audience I just put to sleep. No, <laughs> but, but let me tell that's... you why I think this is really important. Because I, I think the GCM, I don't think you put this audience to sleep, by the way. The, this yeah. audience, likes to get a little bit into down and dirty in the wonkosphere, so I think, I think we're good. Um, the reason I get excited about the GCM, despite the fact that the U.S. decided to pull out of the negotiations and, uh, or the process in December 2017, I hope one day uh, the U.S. comes back, but even without that, the reason I'm excited about the GCM is because it was a member state driven process and you just said that the member states are continuing to be involved, you guys are serving as the secretariat, you're not serving as we're gonna come up with all the solutions and then just get people to sign off. right? Member states are a- actually having to do the really hard work of negotiating with one another on language, on things that are not really easy to talk about, so it- it's gonna be harder, the process is gonna be harder, but I'd argue that the process being harder will lead to the, the outcome being more durable and more long lasting. That's at least my version of optimism, Cindy. I also happen to be a yeah. glass half full type. So um, I, I think what you just described as the next steps is, um, is really continuing on um, this sort of member state driven, you know, you, there needs to be a secretariat, you guys need to be playing a role here but the fact that the, the Secretary General himself and that the member states are still involved, I think, is a really significant thing.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I would agree. And I think one of the challenges that, that, that everyone's looking at is how to benefit from the years of work, various regional consultative processes. Right. I've been doing. Uh, there's the Bali process focused on trafficking. There's the Abu Dhabi dialogue where they're trying to find minimum standards between labor sending and labor receiving countries. I, the list, the list could go on. But how, how to connect those bodies and make yep. sure that that we're tapping into all of that, all of that knowledge. But what's, what's, what's positive about it is that that behind each of those each of those entities, whether or not it's the GCM or it's the different regional bodies, you have member states. Yep. You know, and you have, you have countries that have positions. We can like them, we can not like them. I mean, that was just a, a personal issue, but they have their positions and they engage based on their interest. And, and those that, that really have seen value in it just keep on moving
0: along. Yeah. Yeah, please add to that.
2: Well, maybe to jump in on the value of the GCM and connecting it to the theme of your report on irregular migration, I think think there is a lot of interest and there is evidence to show that increasing the legal, safe, orderly, and regular pathways can help uh, diminish the need for people to use irregular pathways, and mm. and you know some of the mm. just to mention. I, I know that yes, the evidence base still needs to be further developed. So you know it will depend on context um, in some cases. But just again to highlight the the work of my colleague Michael Clemens, who you mentioned the Mexico case, and he he um, did a study, a historical study, that showed how you know, the providing temporary permits for workers to come from Mexico to the United States. Um, Ending that program really led to an increase in irregular migration, because we talk about the push and pull factors. Many of those exist. Whether or not there is a legal channel, so whether it's the U.S. that needs temporary seasonal agricultural workers, or in another country, those push and pull will be there. So if we provide more regular channels, um, and that's not only in terms of labor mi- migration, um, temporary or permanent, but also you know, in the cases where protection people do should have refugee status and making sure that processing happens, you know, in a timely manner, I think really shows how you know member states are and should be interested both because of the potential economic and other benefits of establishing these pathways but also because there's a relationship to irregular migration
0: since you have the floor cindy um you several months ago you wrote and maybe it was even a year ago you wrote what i would consider a a productively provocative thing about a bangladesh compact Mm -hmm. um and uh key brought up bangladesh and, and you know it's in a previous iteration of our work on uh, forced migration, I had been there doing some research as well. So talk to us a little bit about, uh, you've been there recently, I think, yeah. so talk to us a little bit about that. How do you, how do you think about um, what you learned about in Bangladesh?
2: Yeah, and it, you know, we, we did put out a Uh, the the proposal for a Bangladesh compact and just to say the history around that um, we were really inspired in our thinking by other compacts not yet the you know the The the, not yet the global the Jordan compact yeah exactly so at the country and then even before that when I worked at the Millennium Challenge Corporation where the idea there is you also pull together resources to support a, a country to achieve greater inclusive growth. And then with that, there's a set of policy reforms that are not about conditionality, like we'll give you money if you do this, but but what are the policy reforms that are necessary so that we achieve the outcomes that we jointly set forth? And that, yeah. that's in a different context because it's not around displacement. But yeah, but um, then there were the examples like the Jordan Compact, where um, there was a big commitment of both it, aid, concessional finance, and private investment that created a package where it it created the conditions for Jordan to to really make a case to its own people to say that, you know, we are hosting a large number of Syrian refugees, and in order to give them access to employment opportunities, you know, we need to grow the pie. (laughs) And and that's a very uh, understandable thing. To, to believe and, um, and, and the international community did step up and that led to the Jordan Compact, which is similar to the MCC case. I outlined you know, a set of investments and commitments that enabled a productive dialogue and, in, in, and created access to work permits for Syrians. And that's led to, there have been different iterations and commitments and I would say continual improvement. Again, not that it's been perfect. So in the case of Bangladesh, we thought, you know, is there also a package that could be put together to really change the dialogue? And I would say, you know, we have not achieved success. I think it's really still a very tough conversation. However, I will say that we've seen, and I saw on my recent trip there, some signs of progress in that, while there haven't been large policy shifts, you are seeing, you know greater cash for work opportunities for Mm. refugees you are seeing start some planning and thinking about what would a local development plan in Cox's Bazaar look like that does try to grow the pie for everyone and and I do think those policy changes again they're 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 really important and we've done a report on the economic and fiscal effects of granting refugees labor market access and there are a lot of you know, really tricky political dimensions, but I think the more that we can tell that positive narrative about growing the pie and the contributions that refugees could make if they had greater access to the labor market, it's, it's also a really important part of the story around protracted displacement, which mm-hmm. you cite that, you know, people are, uh, refugees are displaced on average for 10 years and those who are displaced for five or more years are displaced for closer to 15 or 20. So what is that more sustainable approach that is more responsive to
3: displacement today?
0: And and that point about growing the pie for everyone also gets to this idea that host communities are really critical here that that Brian mentioned before. Um, Key, I wanna turn to you to talk uh, a a little bit about what we can do about this, um, so whether IMC or, or in your other experiences, um, I mean, you showed a, this is a this is a really, um, I think, uh, meaningful illustration of the the scale of of the problem and the
4: reality that this is about people. Um, what can we do about it? I mean, I think humanitarian organizations like the International Medical Corps, um, we can put a bandaid on the problem, right? I mean, this is the reality in these detention centers. They're in theory managed by the government, but they're really led by militia groups.
0: Militia groups. Militia
4: groups, right? So our access is dependent upon these militia groups who prescribe the conditions in terms of how long they detain, who they detain within these environments, what they're fed. Um, and it's a real challenge really for our staff day in and day out to, to be witness to these horrific conditions. But if we speak out, um, our access, right, to this vulnerable population would be denied. Um, so I think the long-term solution here, and we've seen this, I mean, you, you've touched on the, kind of the multilateral GCM approach here, but we've also seen um, effective measures between bilateral and regional cooperation between countries that export uh, laborers and migrants and countries that take them in. So I think through the Colombo meetings where brought together the south and southeast Asian countries, uh, as well as the Abu Dhabi that had the Gulf states. Um, And having that regional bilateral cooperation where perhaps in those countries where uh, they're exporting migrants, um, policies and information campaigns that allows the migrants to understand the conditions within which they would be deploying to, uh, but also working with the countries that are taking in these migrants to create the types of policies Um, that do not result in exploiting uh, the laborers and providing the conditions within which they're meeting the labor gap, um, but also being able to take care of themselves and their families. So I do think that again, right, this this momentum needs to be built um, at the multilateral, at the regional, at the bilateral level, uh, and ultimately the the solution, right, is, is not kind of how much aid and assistance that we can provide to migrants, Um, It's ultimately the the big governmental policies that have to shift to be able to allow uh, for migration to take place in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Brian, you know, IOM is not just the secretariat for the global compact. I mean, you guys are an implementing organization. You do a lot of really important, uh, a lot of important work on these and other issues. So same question to you. Um, what, what do we do about this and, and I'm primarily asking about the field um, but, but I think this this idea of uh, the policies and, and what we can do regionally and internationally and here in Washington I, I think is really important so take it in whatever direction you'd like but but what, what can we do
1: well I'll, I'll take it to your report I, uh that's a great I <laughs> place to take. I, but I, I like the title Thanks. Uh, because the whole idea of shadows, because shadows can be caused by anything, right? It can be caused by a building, caused by a person, caused by whatever.
0: Uh, but I'm 6'3, I cause a, a few <laughs> shadows when I walk down the street. I am not
1: 6'3. <laughs> but the the point is that there's multiple things that can create the same situation, uh, the same horrific situation. And and, and you both had just been talking quite a bit about, about policies. You know, and when we look at labor sending and labor receiving countries, uh, the unintended consequence of having your visa tied to your employer. If your visa is tied to your employer and things aren't going well, you don't have the mobility. You don't have an opportunity. You can't really use redress on a practical fashion, it may, it may exist. Yeah. Uh, a single entry visa versus a double entry visa. Uh, people go for work. You have a family situation at home. You have to come back, there's a funeral, there's something. A, then you go back to work. You were a regular migrant, now you're an irregular migrant. And, it was just a policy created that. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, your, your, your report talks about uh, conscription in Eritrea and, and how that has such a significant impact on the creation of irregular migration because people don't want to serve. These, we do so often think about the, the natural disasters and the conflicts as, as drivers of displacement and they're, they're hugely, Significant. Uh, some of the some of the policy issues uh, really have a very very similar impact, and mm. so to, to to help unpack the issues, w- which is why I'm I'm really happy that we're having this discourse yeah. today uh, to be able to 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 articulate the the whole complexity of of the situation. So you were talking about drivers earlier, and. And one of the, the, the issues when, when we're looking at drivers is, is that can you really just find one? In Syria, absolutely. Right, that's, that, that, yeah. that's pretty clear what a, what, a, what, a, what a driver is. In, in large swaths of, of the world, what was the tipping point when you and your family said, we're done? yeah you know what what exactly is that your report i i love some of the statistics you pulled together i think it was el salvador when there's a one percent increase in the homicide rates it's 188 percent increase like in uh in, in in outward in outward migration with the, the the wfp report you referred to with el nino communities 1.5 times more likely to then become irregular migrants it's but it's so, so hard I'm glad to at least identify. one person
0: has read their report. <laughs> so I'm going to chalk that up as a victory, yeah. Uh.
1: You know, but it's just, it's, 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 just, but, but, but what about causality? Yeah. That's- yeah, and uh, and 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 allow me to, to have a far more distinguished person no, to, to follow up on that on that issue because that's that's what we grapple with this issue yeah. of causality.
2: Right. Yeah. No. And I was just going to say that those correlations are really interesting, but it just really goes back to Key's point of we need more research, and there yeah. are these you know there are these moments you know in the Central America study that I mentioned, Michael Clements led, where you know just the circumstances enabled us to use a causal identification strategy. So I think there will, but we really have to double down. I I think not that everything it's self-serving for someone at a think tank to say we need to do more research so take it with a grain of salt but I completely agree and I think it's but and I do think that's critical because it's on the basis of that both correlation and then case studies and I'm a qualitative researcher so and all of that and pulling it together to say like here's here's the picture um, and and what how can systems and new policies respond and, and so I'll just end with the kind of Back to the point on how do you communicate with people, there was um, a great study that, um, that came out of UCSD that was around you know, kind of putting people in someone else's shoes like the kind of what would you do and maybe it seems simple it really does get them to think differently and i think that a lot of these situations you could talk about the statistics but in terms of communicating and connecting with people and what's the basis in our common understanding to help build this new system i do think there's so much to the stories that all of you have told and then that and this thought exercise of saying you know what what would be that point for you know me or anyone yeah. to say i'm out of here and i want to say that my threshold just you know, maybe from mostly a life of comfort is like it seems just much lower than what people are facing, yeah. <laughs> you know, when they make the decision to leave.
0: To, to the point where it's not really a decision at all. Right. Right, which yeah. is kind of the point that I make. Look, I could ask you guys a zillion questions. Uh, I, I We have a, a good audience here today and I wanna open it up um, to some questions. And so I'm gonna do that. I have two colleagues with microphones. Um, all I would ask is that you stand up and, and tell us your name and what organization you're with, uh, if you are with one, and then try to end your intervention with, with a question mark if possible. So this uh, one right here, uh, we have a gentleman uh, right here, and then we'll take this uh, woman in the middle here.
3: Uh, my name is Liliana Rodriguez. I'm from Buenos Aires, Argentina, national defense expert and former student at National Defense University here. I really was very impressed about those pictures. If I correctly understood you, uh, you said one bathroom for that amount of people. So my question is, what about the health issues there? Is there any kind of system that allowed them to have a kind of volunteer medical team to treat them as persons?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And if the panelists will indulge me, maybe I could take two or three, and then we can can allow folks so gentlemen with the glasses over here Uh, thank you guys for talking with us today my name is jake Gandolfi. and i'm a grad student at american university in the mpa program with a concentration in international management Um, i have a ton of questions to ask you guys but i'll stick to one that's been kind of on my mind lately Um, i read recently that uh, climate change was one of the one of the big drivers causing the mass migration from uh, the northern triangle in central america and uh, i was wondering if you guys um, have uh, looked at this a little bit in your research. Uh, what other areas in the world are we going to start seeing more uh, uh, you know, climate, climate change effect on, on irregular migration? And uh, what's you know, the, the, the dialogue internationally about how to address it and um, how to go about dealing Thank with this? Thank you it. for asking the climate change question. Absolutely. Um, really, it was like on my list of questions, so it's <laughs> nice when that works out that way. Uh, yes. Uh,
3: Thank you, my name is Luisa Marin. I work at the Organization of American States at the Working Group for the Venezuelan Migration Crisis. And I I am very impressed listening to you, uh, and this is so enriching. But at the same time, um, I have a question because I haven't heard anything about Venezuela, and I would like to know why this migration crisis in Venezuela has enriched the global Uh, awareness that it deserves I was there in the border between Colombia and Venezuela and it's something that is like I haven't seen anything in my life like that like that before so I would like to know why
4: Yeah,
0: certainly not in Latin America. Uh, Thank you for that question, that's important. So maybe I'll just go down the end, since the first question was geared mostly at key, but um, I think you guys can take um, any and all of these, Mm -hmm. and and if you skirt any of them, I'll make sure and make a follow-up so that we don't uh, uh, miss any.
4: So on the question regarding um, access to healthcare within Libya, there's about 800,000 migrants In give or take, right, in in, in Libya these days. And the majority of them are not living in the detention centers. Um, They are within the host communities themselves. And there are groups like the International Medical Corps, and we partner with IOM and UNHCR, uh, that do provide uh, uh, public health uh, in clinics. We're in the detention center, as I mentioned here, where our mobile medical teams come in. Uh, We're providing sea rescues. But again, uh, I have to say that a lot of uh, focus and attention has been on the detention centers themselves. Uh, We need to focus a little bit more again on the broader uh, population of migrants within uh, Libya itself. Um, But again, it's a balance between shedding more uh, of a light and focus on these migrants because one of the issues that we're constantly grappling with is that we operate a clinic um, in order to provide support to, to the migrants and IDPs, when they're lining up and queuing in front of our clinic, um, it raises their visibility, um, and, and militia groups can come by and pick them up and put them in these detention centers. So in terms of getting access and the ability to actually provide for care, um, it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge in terms of dealing uh, with, with, with the armed militia groups who really are in control in many of these areas. Um, Just one quick comment on Venezuela. My wife is Venezuelan, and she asks the same question every day. Uh, Why aren't we doing more? And I think that when we look at the numbers of whether we are uh, giving them the status of refugees or not, there are more displaced persons uh, flowing out of Venezuela than even in Syria. Um, So this is uh, a great, great problem, and and it's a perplexing issue in terms of why it has not resulted in more action. Cindy.
2: Yeah, I I also asked that question, and um, one someone I've collaborated with, um, Danny Bahar at Brookings just put out an interesting piece showing that also the disparity in international funding that's been made available to displaced Venezuelans, and I'm I'm I know there are a number of reasons, and I haven't done an in-depth enough reflection and research to say what the hierarchy is, but I. I would, going back to Errol's opening remarks, um, not that the U.S. hasn't played leadership, but I think that we're just not, we don't have that kind of coordinated, focused global group that's really shining in the light and stepping up. There is a lot of fantastic um, commitment by bilateral donors, by private sector. I was just, I've also collaborated before with the tent partnership for refugees, which is led by the CEO of Chobani Yogurt, um, Hamdi Ulukaya, and he was recently there, and he came up in my Twitter feed as someone who's recently visited to say, you know, the private sector also has to help by employing Venezuelans, et cetera. So, you know, you see these bright spots, but but I, yeah, I don't know the answer, but I think it's something that we have to keep asking and really, and, and pushing to make sure that greater attention is paid, and, and I do hope that it's not just. Unfortunately, I think in a lot of crises we see that greater attention is paid when something, you know, happens. You know, maybe there's a big. I don't hope this for this to happen, but epidemic, or you know, because the services aren't there. So I really hope that the attention and leadership of the countries continues, and that it could really be, um, you know, a positive story. And I'll just quickly say on climate, that's not an area of my expertise, but I know in areas of West Africa there's there is there are increasing trends of course there are reports i, I don't know that they've all been verified that also in the case of syria that climate change played a role so i i just i hope that's an area where we continue to acknowledge the reality of human-caused climate change and that there is a response and again greater research that bridges i think that goes back to the conversation we had about the different causes so they're kind of more proximate causes potentially but that there are these longer-term trends that we have to pay attention to as well
1: yeah. uh, i guess to, to start with the with the prisons, uh, the detention centers, it's you know I, I wish it was a matter of how do we get to sphere, uh, but in the, the I interviewed a lot of people who came out of those detention centers, and you know, the vast majority of them are outside of government control, and they're, they're, they just don't have any access to, and, and and I've had them describe you you either have a a work prison or a killing prison. And the work prison is where you're in a good enough condition that, that, that the owner of that prison can uh, sell you on the daily labor market. Uh, and and then, then there's when you're not. Um, and it's just, it's just the situation's so horrific. There's been some steps, there, there, I'm an optimist as, as well, and there's a, there's, there's a lot of joint positions on how how to improve the situation and how to how to have access, but it's just the situation. It's just such. It's so much more horrible than a lack of access to basic services. Uh, that it, it, as as critically important as as they are, it's it, unfortunately it's just it, it's just so much worse. Um, for for the, the the question on climate change, uh, we one of the most. Uh, confrontational meetings i was ever uh, a participant in was in was in fiji at the u.n climate change uh, uh compact it was a regional regional consultations where where i've been brought as a uh a subject matter expert on on displacement and the idea that pacific island states would look at migration as an adaptation strategy oh. mm. as opposed to how about compensation you know we'll, we'll, talking about the displacement as as part of the solution no 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 higher seawalls and the west will pay uh, the west had different opinions and so it was a very heated conversation but more recently, and I believe it's Kiribati, and I think you referenced it in your in, in your report. Actually, they bought some land in Fiji,
3: yeah,
1: uh, in, in order to so, so migration is one of the adaptation strategies, and so that's that's starting to enter the discourse a bit more than 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 it used to uh, for for Venezuela. Uh, you know, IOM's been been privileged to 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 work jointly with UNHCR on on the platform as per a request of the UN Secretary General for for assistance of Venezuelans outside of of Venezuela, and I, I agree with everything that. That the that, 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 that the person with the question had. You're, you're you're completely correct. It's it's not getting the resources that 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 it needs. It needs significantly more. Just, just today, the, the the head of the platform uh, put out a statement focusing on on this particular issue, and we just need to continue. Is it? But you, you did you didn't you didn't ask what the excuse was. You asked why, um, and I don't know. Maybe geography. I don't know for sure but if you want to galvanize a response to to libya and and you're looking for funding from the eu the fact that it's just right across the med uh we can't discount that uh the amount of resources that go into into turkey and you look at the 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 proximity issue so is that part of it Uh, That wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me, but the honest answer is I don't have I don't have a good answer to your question
0: So I I normally as the moderator I don't answer questions, but I I think I'm (laughs) going to use the moderators prerogative to answer a couple of these and I'll start with the Venezuela one which I think is really a a fantastic one and I do uh, Having looked at this recently. I don't think these are the the full answers But I think your your question about why it's not getting more attention is partially an appeal for us to talk about this more generally, and I'm fully on board with that, and we should have separate things that are just on this. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really important one. And the first answer I have is a little bit of donor fatigue, a la what Brian said. And, and the, the way that I think about that is, you know, the, the IOM and UNHCR, by the way, if you're looking for a bright spot in all of the darkness, the collaboration between IOM and UNHCR is something to, to watch. Um, both in uh, Venezuela and sort of responding to Venezuela, but also in, in Bangladesh and other places. I think you guys are doing admirable partnerships and, and working together in ways that you haven't before. But their joint appeal, there's a regional response framework or plan or something uh, for, for Venezuelan displacement and, and the appeal for this year is less than $800 million. Now to me, that sounds like a lot of money. $800 million is a lot of money. Um, If you're thinking about responses to global crises and five million by the end of the year Venezuelans displaced, the international community could sneeze and come up with $800 million if they actually wanted to. And the U.S. is actually one of the larger contributors to that, but as Brian mentioned, the the Europeans are, are much more focused on um, Sub-Saharan Africans coming across the Mediterranean, they're focused on Syrians, they're focused on Afghans, and other issues, and, and I get the sense, and I'm not quoting anybody here, this is a little bit of my sense, is I get the sense that um, they're kinda like the US and Canada, you know, you guys are in the Western Hemisphere, this is a Western Hemisphere problem. I think they're contributing, they're playing ball, they're, they're going to the meetings, but they're really looking to leadership on these issues from the United States. I'll just leave that there. Um, one part of the Venezuela conversation that doesn't get talked about near enough, and I'm gonna use this platform to talk about it for a second, is the islands. The, the Caribbean islands, if you think of Curaçao, there's something like 22,000 Venezuelans in Curaçao. Oh, is not that much. Well, it's a heck of a lot when your population is about 120,000. You're talking about 16 percent of the population of Curacao right now is displaced Venezuelans. That's significant, and that's I mean that's almost backbreaking. Um, Colombia has the most; it's really one percent of the population in Colombia. So I won't go too far on, on that rant, but I think that's really important. Quickly on the on the climate change, I think climate change is such a fundamental thing to talk about here because our next conversation that we're going to have on this. Is going to talk probably about how climate change is at the root of all of the other root causes, uh, and I don't think that that's you know we list it as one of a root cause. But if you think about climate change, it's it's the root cause of food insecurity. It's the root cause of you know rising sea levels and 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 you know forcing people on Kiribati and other places to leave. So I think that's really um, critical. And and the last thing I'll say on climate is that there's not really a good international architecture response to those that are displaced by climate. I think um, both the GCR and the GCM mention uh, people uh, displaced by, by climate, and that's, I think, a positive start. But we have a long way to go to, I mean, the reason that I said 100 million people is a conservative estimate of irregular migrants globally is primarily because all the people that are that have had to leave home and are moving irregularly because of climate don't have official status. Uh, and they don't fall under protection. And correct me if I'm wrong, panel, but they don't fall into any, any protection like that. Um, I want to take a few more questions. Uh, yes, gentlemen in the glasses here. Uh, and then we'll take one from there and then the, the woman here. I'm trying to be equal opportunity sides. So.
3: Thank you very much for this timely and valuable report. So Ozan Chakmak from IFC. And my question will be on the one of the key recommendations you have in the report on partnering and leveraging, uh, leveraging, leveraging and partnering with private sector. So my question to the uh, distinguished panelists could be, what could be done to increase the private sector role in these responses uh, by the humanitarian organizations, UN, and the think tanks, and the governments? And also, what particular role can private sector play especially in the hard-to-operate markets, where the markets are not maybe functioning like you know, the uh, middle-income or high-middle-income countries? Thank you so much.
0: Excellent questions. Thank you, Ozanbe. Uh Yes, gentlemen in, in the middle here.
3: Yeah, I'm Ken Meyercourt. I can't believe we've discussed uh, the Venezuelans in Colombia so much without anyone pointing out that Colombia itself has the largest population of internally displaced people in the world. Seven million, which dwarfs the million or two Venezuelans in Colombia, even dwarfs the five million Colombians in, in Venezuela. Uh, in any case, our IDPs, uh, and talk about lack of attention, I doubt if one person in 10 was aware that Colombia has the largest population of internally displaced people in this audience, I'm not sure the panel know. our uh, inter- IDPs irregular migrants? or uh, something else? And wh- how does the number of IDPs in the world compare to uh, irregular migrants?
0: Excellent question. Thank you very much.
3: Hi, thank you so much for the fantastic exposition of everyone. I, I would like to mention some comments and then at the end a question. My comment relate with the fact. I feel like right now in the war, we assist more and more to huge amount of migrants around the world that are escaping home because there are all criminalized states that are in power or criminalized groups that are taking power of their life. So they really have to leave. Or they are in war, conflict and war, right? So these are irregularities. So those are criminal situation, criminals power. And I feel like the formal power, institutions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mechanisms related with the problem, are moving really slow. Mm. And at the end, we are creating a massive amount of population, in irregular, in irregular situation, that are extremely vulnerable, yeah. either as a victims for the criminal again groups or the criminal powers, or that are passing to be the workers of the criminal economy. Hmm. So my comment is is this fact in one way or another touch or discuss or even or oh, is too far away from the discussions? I know it's very naive the question, but I just I don't want to touch the point because I think it's super important. I mean it's more and more vulnerability of the migrants. Yeah. And we are talking about millions and millions of them. So I feel like a machine is eating their self, right? Yeah.
0: I think it's a really good question, actually. And, and on page six of the report, actually, I talk about something about how um, people movement, so smugglers, traficantes, coyotes, etc. it's no longer a niche business. There's a UN report that talks about how, and I use the term business deliberately here, um, there's a report out that says between 5.5 and 7 billion dollars last year was made, or was, uh, in a recent year, was made by people smuggling. The U.S. spends 7 billion dollars a year, that, i.e., the same amount on global humanitarian assistance. I mean, this is no longer part of the the, the shadows construct. Is to actually draw attention to the the um, sort of people moving through those irregular pathways is actually, <clears throat> a lot of times they're using these criminal networks that have existed for for other things. So thank you very much for bringing that up and I apologize to the panelists for getting excited about page six there for a second. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, maybe I'll go the other way. So yeah. Brian and, and Cindy and Keith. Yeah. Okay, and I'll start with
1: the last comment. Uh, just really echoing what you, what, what you said, Errol. I mean, the the smuggling and trafficking networks are so highly sophisticated. They're, they've got supply chains, like a Fortune 500 company. Um, and a, an issue that ties into the shadows is, is that displacement more and more so in outward migration. I think when we close our eyes and we think about it, many people think about it in an antiquated fashion and that's the one-way movement from the global south into the global north. And that's just simply not the case anymore. It was as of about, I think it was three years ago, I'm thinking of the World Migration Report, and that's when the south-south mobility and south-south migration exceeded the the idea from from south-north, but then, then the data gets a bit spottier and there's there's not there's not so much light on, on on the problem, hence, hence the shadows. And since that's that's a growing trend, having these regional migration patterns uh, much more so than 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 crossing continents, it's it's an issue that that exists and and certainly an issue that's that's going to that's going to continue. Um, you know, for the uh, for the private sector, there's, putting the optimist hat on, I think we have an opportunity right now, because uh, what was it, it was about uh, a week or so ago, it came out from the business roundtables, 150 hmm. some odd CEOs that, 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 that turned Milton Friedman upside down yep. <laughs> and said that, that shareholder profit is not the, the sole rationale of a corporation anymore. Thank you very much, we, we appreciate those, those signatories. So what does it mean? Yeah. And how do we unpack it, and how is that gonna impact migrants? Think of the positive impact it could have on uh, managing the supply chains, on the ethical recruitment issues that are occurring. And I think that's just a great space where, where, where the U.S. can really have a leading role. Uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is pretty, pretty forward-leaning in in this area, the US is pretty forward leaning as far as private sector engagement. Uh, and, then, and then as far as what the private sector can do itself, I, I always look at it two separate ways. So it's kind of three. It's pro bono, low bono, or no bono, you know? And, and if it's philanthropy, <laughs> that's great. Uh, we're, we're, we're all equal opportunity recipients of, uh, of, uh, of largesse, pr- preferably cash. Uh, <laughs> aside, aside from that, it's really when when the market makes sense, and 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 you're looking at at, at an intervention, uh, doing what that business does, you know, and really creating markets, creating job opportunities in, in in unstable environments. And there's there's risk associated with that, and there's ways to hedge that risk. And it'd be a conversation love uh, love love to continue. Um, with, with the IDPs in Colombia, yeah, it, it, is, it is the largest in, in the world. And as far as the overall number of migrants that, that we're facing, I think IOM puts the figure at roughly about, about 58 million. Uh, I'd kind of tie the, the, the comment on Venezuela to the, to the initial comment. We, something for, for a lot of people to... to to understand there's also the circular fashion of 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 venezuelan migration there, yep. there's a lot of outflows but there's also a lot of people that are going into colombia to access services and then and then going back to going back to venezuela sometimes uh, on a daily basis mm-hmm. so, yeah mm-hmm. and uh, really our our biggest request which which came out uh, uh, again it came out in a in a statement that 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 was just earlier today is can the neighboring countries maintain what to date has been some relatively lax immigration standards allowing people to cross out of Venezuela and coming and accessing services. That's, that's not simply a, an economic issue, right? It's not simply a, a, do we have the services? Do we have the capacity to absorb? It's also a political issue
0: yeah.
1: and and to go full circle, I'd say back, you know back when the when the when the head of the Thai Red Cross had to make a decision to get assistance to Myanmar migrants, which means that he wasn't getting assistance to uh, uh, certain to Thai. certain Thais who were in need. These are the decisions that have to be made, and they're not made in a vacuum; they're made in a political environment. He took a lot of heat for that, and in, in, in the end, I really really appreciated him. For it, so hopefully the governments will even be more progressive uh, as far as as far as welcoming the migrants and refugees that are that that, that are crossing into their countries.
0: Excellent, Cindy.
2: Well, I think we have one minute left, so I'll only answer Osan's question. Just to highlight, I think it's really exciting what's happened in terms of the different kinds of private sector engagement. Disagree with Brian slightly on cash is great. I would push, I'd say, okay, give cash if you can, and if you're not in a position to do something else, and I think we're really exploring with the leadership of the World Bank and IFC and Tent and others what that something else is, and that goes back to what I spoke about, about you know growing the pie, hosting, whether, whether it's, uh, Irregular migrants or refugees like we've got to keep growing the pie so that we can help promote social cohesion and creating opportunities and leaving no one behind. So I think there are a lot of ways to do that and just one quick plug to say that on World Refugee Day, Center, the Center for Global Development and Refugees International launched a new initiative to look at how can we increase labor market access for refugees mm. so that's on the policy side, but then how do we further engage the private sector so that we can generate more sustainable solutions together?
4: Absolutely. Key. Okay. All right. Um, I'll say this, right? All states have the, the prerogative. The sub- The sovereign prerogative to be able to prescribe the the conditions for entry for non nationals within their countries, right? But they should do so with evidence and data. And I think this is really where the private sector can really help because, as um, Cindy had mentioned here, we need more regular migration opportunities that are labor based. So the private sector can match skills between what's the labor gap within countries with countries that can export and train individuals. So this is really where it can benefit a a whole industry in terms of the private sector to be able to be these brokers. You can train the laborers, you can place the laborers, right? and ultimately it benefits uh, those countries that really need additional uh, 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 skills sets, and those who have a, a surplus of individuals there that don't necessarily have those opportunities at home. Um, so that's where I do think again it comes back to, you know, you have a right to be able to 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 set those conditions, but let's make sure that it's done with evidence and data and not on the rhetoric uh, that is not based uh, on the practical realities. So
0: my last question to the panelists, as Cindy mentioned, we're we're out of time, but. Um, If if you were to leave the audience with uh, a tweet-length takeaway based on this conversation or um, anything else that you want to bring in that's that's related to this, you know, what would that be? And while you're thinking about it, I I put up what mine is, uh, which is part of the the report. Um, And while they're thinking about it, too, just thank all of you for taking the time to do this. and, And thanks, everyone, for for taking the time to be here and ask such really thoughtful questions. I'm always struck by the quality of questions that are asked at CSIS events. So thank you for maintaining that high bar. Um, So maybe Key, let's start, actually we haven't started with Cindy yet. Uh, Cindy, let's start with- uh, Okay, fine. Key, uh, let's start with you and and go down. What what are your tweet length takeaways for the audience?
4: to, to be transparent, Errol gave us a heads-up that he would actually ask us this. Yeah. So I, I kind of gave thought to it. And I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there that somehow or another migrants, whether they are uh, refugees, regular, irregular, um, are a drain within the host community in terms of, of the basic services. And I ran across uh, this study done, I think, by ILO, that noted that 85% of the monies that migrants make stay within those host communities. It stays there in terms of the taxes that they pay, the rents that they pay, right? the food consumption. So therefore, it is a, an economic boom in terms of what it means for these host communities. So that would be my tweet. of what all migrants make stay within their host communities.
0: Okay, I was wondering when you were going to get to the. (laughs) There uh, (laughs) you go. I had to explain it. 280 characters (laughs) is a lot. It's not that you Can give
2: us a heads up? And I didn't prepare, so I will end on a philosophical note that it's precisely in these most challenging times that we must reject a politics of fear and reach for hope, light, and optimism.
0: Hmm. Brian?
1: Yeah, for me, I mean, I, look, I, I didn't do anything. I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. I didn't do anything to, to, to earn my passport at birth and to be able to fly to 100-plus whatever countries without a visa. So, uh, so my tweet is, there but the grace of God go I. Mm. Yeah.
0: Please join me in thanking the panelists. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much.